Welcome back to the Stock Market Options Trading Podcast. My name is Eric. In this episode, I'm back with another edition of the Stock Market Startup Series, where I get to interview founders, CEOs, and developers of stock market-related companies that help retail traders like us when it comes to trading and investing. And for this episode, I got to speak with Will Ryan from Granite Shares. I learned a ton about ETFs talking with this guy. He's so smart and learned a lot about what it takes to actually create an ETF. Now, Will is the founder and CEO of GraniteShares.com. They have over $1.7 billion in total AUM, assets under management. And Will himself, he's an established ETF entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in the industry. And one of the cool things that Granite Shares is doing is offering leveraged single stock ETFs. And a couple of the names we're going to talk about in this episode are names like Tesla and NVIDIA. And I think you're going to find this extremely interesting. So be sure to listen to the entire episode. Now let's get into the conversation with Will Rind of GraniteShares.com. Today, we have Will Ryan on the show from GraniteShares.com. We're going to talk about some ETFs. They're doing something pretty interesting over there. So, Will, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on. Doing very well. Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much for having me on today. Yeah, I'm really interested in some of the things you're doing at Granite Shares around single stock ETFs and, and leverage and some stuff. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about yourself. Just give me a little background info about you and the company. Sure. Happy to. So I've been involved in the ETF business or the ETF industry for the vast majority of my career. And absent of a very short stint in investment banking, just after college, I got involved with ETF or exchange traded funds you know, in the early 2000s. And I've just really sort of followed that product through different companies and different experiences to end up you know, starting Granite Shares in 2016. But that's a mix of big companies such as BlackRock iShares to smaller entrepreneurial ventures that we built up and, and later sold to bigger companies. But the, the common thread has always been ETFs or exchange-traded funds. And you know, when we first started doing that in the early 2000s, you know, not many people knew about them. It was very much a kind of an institutional you know, phenomenon. But you know, the interest and clear the market size of the ETF market has just grown phenomenally in that time. And now they are really just the instrument of choice for investors replacing the mutual fund. And that's been the big shift in asset management, you know, over the last couple of decades. I know SPY, we talk about a lot in my circles because we trade options is very liquid and it's probably the most liquid instrument. Do, do you remember when that came out? Like the first kind of major ETFs, when was that? The 2000s? Actually, before that, so 2000 really was the, the date that iShares kind of got going and that was, became the biggest, still is the biggest brand today. But things like SPY, actually the first ETF in Canada started in the 90s, um, but it just took a long time for really people to, I, I guess, for it to go mainstream in terms of adoption. So something right. like an S SPY goes back to the 90s, but you know, certainly that would be the oldest or one of the oldest examples available. And probably the most common that, that I see. We talked, before we got on the, the show, we talked a little bit about who the players were uh, who create these ETFs. And you, you mentioned iShares. And you mentioned there was sort of a difference between you know American ETFs and maybe European. Can you sort of lay the groundwork as to who creates these ETFs and where they're available? Sure. So... 
I guess from an from industry speak, we refer to the ETF as a wrapper, you know, like a wrapper that contains anything. But you know, really, what it is is it's a it's a fund, it's a product, whichever what whatever parlance you want to use that has, like I said, become the instrument of choice for investors that are looking to invest clearly in something other than just individual stock. And so the beauty of the ETF is that really you can put almost anything into that package that you want. And so that lends the market to all sorts of different companies because different companies provide different things. So you'll have companies and typically bigger companies that will provide the kind of broad based, you know, more generic type ETF, such as the SPY you mentioned, the S&P 500 type exposures. And then clearly you'll have companies like us, which are more akin to boutiques or specialist managers that provide more specialist ETFs on different subjects, different underlying. And really the difference between those two markets, both Europe and the US is going to be more about the different players involved, the different strategies that are deployed in both of those, and therefore the different opportunities available for investment. So tell me about why you started Granite Shares and tell me a little bit about some of the offerings you, you guys are doing over there. Yeah, so really for me, like I said, I mean, I've spent my entire career doing this and, you know, you can think of it in some respect as an evolution from you know, working for an ETF company you know, as an employee and then participating in an ETF company as, yes, an employee, but also um, an equity owner to a part owner in the business to then ultimately starting my own ETF company. And, you know, that, that put is granite shares that we're doing today. So I suppose it was a bit of an evolution, if you will, in terms of different roles and different experiences, but ultimately with the view of um, starting own business to offer products that we think were missing in the market and providing opportunities for investors that didn't exist before and frankly weren't going to be offered by the bigger companies. And that's the role of a firm like Granite Shares is to provide these specialist ETFs for investors who are looking for something different, not just your kind of big box store generic type exposure. I know, you know, there's leverage ETFs and I think you offer some of those. Can you tell me or help explain? And I sort of know this inherently just from a general sense of they'll say, if you're going to trade a leveraged ETF, it's really more for short-term trading versus long-term trading. So you kind of maybe give me a little bit of the mechanics or something under, under the hood about leveraged ETFs versus not leveraged. Sure. So in, in terms of a unleveraged ETF, the reason why people don't say that is because the underlying portfolio doesn't change and it only rebalances according to whatever that index schedule is. It might be once a quarter, it might be once every six months, it might even be once a year. So from the period before and after the rebalance, the portfolio doesn't change. With leveraged ETF, portfolio changes every day because the fund rebalances every day. The reason it does that is so that mathematically you can get the, whatever the stated leverage factor, we call it, but the amount of leverage per day. So for example, if you say that a particular fund is two times leveraged or three times or one and a half times, 
the reason you want to rebalance is because you can then provide that on a daily basis. And if you don't rebalance it, that leverage will either be higher or lower than the stated amount, almost certainly. So the, the, the shorter term, the ramifications of doing that are that it's not a linear relationship between the underlying index and the performance of the fund, not necessarily. So if you hold it for a period of time, a long period of time, you might see a deviation between the price of the ETF and the underlying index. So for example, if the if ETF simply put was two times leveraged, and let's say you held it for a year, at the end of the year, the performance of the ETF might not necessarily be two times that of the underlying index. And the reason for that is because it's changing every day, and therefore the profits, if you will, if the market goes up, are being reinvested at the end of each day. And then the leverage is calculated off of that reinvestment amount the day after. So it leads to a compounding effect, a compounding of returns, which either works for or against you, depending on the market condition. So if you're in a trending market, the market's trending up, for example, in a two-time levered or whatever the ETF leverage factor is, Typically, that means you'll outperform the linear leverage amount because of the compounding effect. Conversely, if you're trending downward, you'll underperform because again, you're compounding a negative. And then if it's in a choppy market where the market is just going up and down, up and down, up and down, again, that typically will lead to underperformance of the underlying because of the, the compounding effect. So we prefer to say to people that, you know, these particular ETFs, because they're leveraged, if you're trading anything that has leverage, you just need to be more actively monitored. So whether you're holding it for a few days or whether you're holding it for a month or whatever, if you hold it for a longer period of time, it's fine, providing that you're monitoring your portfolio closely, which you should be doing with any leveraged instrument. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the things you, you, you guys are doing are single stock ETFs. And I think when I first heard this, I, I was trying to understand, okay, well, well, why, why would someone, and let's take Tesla, for example, why would someone buy a Tesla single stock ETF over the stock itself? So can you kind of enlighten us on, on the use case and kind of understanding about single stock ETFs? I mean, it's super interesting. Yeah. So leverage single stocks are kind of, as the name suggests, their leverage on a single stock in an ETF wrapper. So you have prepackaged leverage. If you were to buy the Tesla stock, clearly that's an unleveraged investment in your brokerage account. So if you, if you buy $1,000 worth of Tesla stock, you get $1,000 of exposure to that particular company. With a leveraged ETF, if it's one and a half times leveraged, if it's 1.25 times leveraged, whatever the amount is, if you're buying a thousand dollars notional, you get $1,250 exposure to Tesla or $1,500 exposure to Tesla stock. But you do that just as easily as trading the stock itself because it's in an ETF wrapper. And the reason for leveraged ETFs on single stocks, is just a new category of ETF. So leveraged ETFs have been around for, for some time, but they're typically up until this point taken the form of leverage on broad indexes. 
So leverage against the S&P 500 or an index like that. Also, they've been leveraged or there are leveraged ETFs on commodities. And in the commodity markets, you can get both broad indexes and individual commodities. But up until really very recently, no one had ever done it on individual stocks. And clearly, individual stocks are one of the places that are most intuitive, arguably, to use leverage. And historically, it's where people have you know, deployed leverage into individual stocks. It's just like everything else with ETFs. ETFs typically just make the job a lot simpler and a lot easier. And the comparison really would be leveraging a, an individual stock in your brokerage account. So one, you'd have to open up a margin account you know, in your stocks. You'd have to be permissioned for doing that, which not everybody would be. You have to then pay the margin rate, which now obviously is very expensive given where rates are. But even when rates were pretty much zero, the margin rates were up at eight, nine percent per annum just to borrow the money. So borrowing money and doing it is, is clunky. There's a margin term. You have to put collateral against that. And the reason why most people lose money with leverage is because the amount of collateral um, that they pose through margin gets to a point where the position goes against them, can no longer fund it, and it closes out. With the ETF, there's no margin. You just buy and hold, so you don't have to post any, any margin on that. And then the other thing is that a lot of these leverage single stock ETFs are short or inverse exposures. And that's just still something that even for vast majority of professional investors, they can't do that. And so having a tool with an ETF to go short or to take an inverse exposure against the individual stock, that's built something that is very, very new to the vast majority of people. It's very difficult to do in a traditional brokerage account, especially. Gotcha. What are some of the stocks that you guys are creating these ETFs for? What are some of the ones you have available now? Yeah, so we have pretty good offering of different names, but as, as people might expect, I mean, hopefully there'd be names that not only people are very familiar with, but people actively trade in. So Tesla being the name that I think probably most people be familiar with. So TSL is the ticker code of our leveraged test single ETF. But we have exposure to Coinbase, which of course is a cryptocurrency proxy, exposure to Alibaba, to Meta, to NVIDIA. So companies like that, that are, you know, really household names that people want to trade, but you can get leveraged exposure through ETF. Gotcha. A lot of the big stocks had, had done these reverse blitz a while back. I remember when Amazon and Google were like $3,000 a share and one of the things that were, was being offered in various brokerages, I never really participated, but I, I would see things about fractional shares, you know, yeah. someone who, who couldn't buy a, a single share of Amazon, but they, you know, they could buy 30 bucks worth. H how does the, how does the price of the ETF compare to the stock or are they just completely separate? And I, you know, for example, I, I sometimes trade leveraged ETFs with the S&P 500. I'll, I'll trade S SSO or SDS. And then for the Qs, there's TQQQ, which is a triple, yeah. and SQQQ, which is a triple inverse. So there are times that I, I trade those for very short-term stuff, and they really have nothing. I, I don't think there's a relation, especially the inverse, right? Because as stocks go up, the inverse goes down, and they end up having to reverse split or whatever. For these types of stocks... 
are the prices of the, because I haven't looked them up, are the prices of the ETFs tend to be less than the stock itself or, or are they, is there any sort of correlation? How does that work? There's almost zero correlations. That's much more about right. the, just of listing an ETF than anything else. So very simply, ETFs, when they go through a listing process, that the amount of seed capital that you need for the ETF is, is around a million dollars per fund. And obviously you, you can, you can put as much as you want in there, but typically the minimum amount is roughly about a million dollars. And so typically people then have what they call creation baskets, which is a amount of shares that are needed to create new shares with the fund. And so those historically were around 50,000 shares per basket. Now those are a little bit lower. So you can see ones that say 10,000, but normally the math is, is typically around a $20 stock price. And the $20 stock price is this sort of, it's definitely not scientific. It's much more of an art than, than the science, but mm -hmm. I think it's a number that people have coalesced on, around because it's, you know, not too high, but people are put off by it. it's not too low that, you know, it will, you know, have to you know, be reverse split or anything if the market goes down, but yet corresponds to multiply that by the number of shares in the basket. And if you have a couple of baskets, you know, you get to, you know, your sort of minimum seed capital amount. So it's much more kind of around that than anything else. Gotcha. And you know, I'm really new to, to some of these concepts about, you know, how these work behind the scenes. So are you saying as the ETF creator, you have to own a certain amount of those shares of the stock itself so that you can create the ETF off of that? Is that what I'm hearing? So think about it as there are three parties, just for simplicity. There are more than, than three, but let's say there's the ETF creator or there's the fund which is us, that's Granite Shares. There's the customer, who's clearly the, the investor at the end. And then in the middle, there's the stock exchange or the stock market. And so we lift the fund on the stock exchange. And therefore, the only way that investors can ultimately get exposure to the fund is they buy and sell shares of the fund that are listed on the stock market. And how those shares or how the investor's money makes its way into the fund ultimately, or comes out of the fund and back into their account. That's through the process that there are market makers that make prices on the stock or on the ETF shares on the stock exchange. They're the ones that are managing the inventory of shares and they come to the fund to what we call create, which as it sounds, we issue or create more shares according to supply in the market or demand in the market and or redeem, which is the opposite. We cancel shares and, and give people the money back, you know, according to when people are selling in the market. So that's the kind of mechanism that is at play in the market. And it's just managing the supply and demand of inventory. But yes, ultimately the fund, the fund will own whatever the underlying is. So in the case of, you know, a broad equity fund, it will own the underlying shares. Or if it's using derivatives, it will own a derivative. Or if it's commodities, it will own, in some cases, physical commodities. Gotcha. Interesting. 
What's the best way for my listeners to learn more about this? Should they just go to, is it granitechairs.com? And just go check out the offerings. I know I, I put a few of the tickers in my charts and I, I definitely see them. Is that the best way for them to start, you know, learning about this and potentially using it? Yeah, I think as a starting place, clearly what, what grandchairs.com gives you is your know, more specific information about the funds themselves. So people, you will need to look at the fund fact sheet, fund perspective, you know, learn up on, you know, what the individual strategies are, because the amount of leverage varies as well per fund. And clearly the uh, actual stocks themselves vary, but people can look at the website, grantfest.com for that. There's also educational resources there. And I think now I mean, the, just the general standard of education, I think just on the internet more broadly is, mm -hmm. is really quite good in terms of trying to learn about EPF concepts. And so certainly resources like ETF.com or Vetify, they're, they're not ETF creators, they're sort of publisher website. They're good resources as well for people to go and just learn about ETFs more broadly. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of good information out there, but certainly anything specific, you know, come to the website and then you can ask us questions if you have anything specific. Yeah, great. I, you know, I was just thinking about the, you know, how do you sort of gauge the interest for creating a new ETF. I'm assuming you guys are looking into, you know, more products and more ETFs. You know, what, what do you use to sort of kind of solidify like, okay, like, like NVIDIA, for example, like, okay, let's do NVIDIA. Is it just more popularities or volume or something when it comes to those? What, what's your process there? Again, it, it's a great question. And it, it's more of an art than a science. And, you know, fundamentally, we're a product company. They're a product first company. And so mm -hmm. we have designed a product that will be used by, you know, investors of the future. And that, you know, we, our success, I guess we, we live and die by our ability to do that. And so part of that is predicting trends, investing trends that we think are going to be important and providing products, you know, for that. But also part of it is simply just being able to try and anticipate you know, demand in certain sectors of the market as conditions change. So as interest rates rise or as inflation rises, you know, there are new then investing challenges that we need to respond to. And then of course we have customer feedback and we have, you know, the more traditional way that you might research things like that, where customers will come to us and say, Hey, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? So all those different avenues, but ultimately, you know, it comes down to, we have to make a, a call, a judgment call on, in, in your case, whether NVIDIA is the right stock to launch. And we are all, we don't always get that right. Um, mm -hmm. and clearly that's the beauty of the market or a capitalist environment is that if we launch a product and the market doesn't take it, then that doesn't work. And we have to close that down, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's a, it, it's certainly, you know, the, the biggest challenge and it, it is the core, the core you know, thing that the core problem that we work on all the time is like how to launch products or what products to launch that are going to be next and they're going to be successful and create real impact in the market. Yeah. I would assume with singles, single stocks that over time, like I was just thinking of Blackberry, I don't know why it came to mind, but you know, for the longest time, Blackberry was like, no one ever thought Blackberry was going to go. I had a, I had multiple Blackberries with the, <laughs> the walkie talkie thing. And I had, I think there was some game on there I played 
And then, you know, then Apple comes along and, and then you know, basically BlackBerry goes out. So it was interesting. You said, yeah, if it's not working, then you end up, you would just have to shut that down, right? If you had a BlackBerry yeah. ETF, whatever, 20 years ago, you probably no longer have that, right? So you're saying- yeah, and the, you're, you're kind of heading on another really good point, which is they, they have to have longevity because for maybe some of the listeners that don't know, the only way we make money as a firm is on management fees. So we don't make money off of the trading of the ETF. There's no commission. The only way we make money is just the assets that are invested in the fund. So the more assets, you know, our hope is that there are more assets invested, you know, in the fund over time. And therefore the small percentage cut that we take from that will grow over time. So clearly it's not in our interest to launch anything where, you know, the assets are going to go down or there's a right. chance of, of not just going down, but going out of business. So when we, when we think about a stock, we're often asked for stocks that are very, I, I don't say meme stocks per se, but they're stocks that are having a moment. So bed, bath and beyond, for example, right. a good, where there was a moment in time, there was a huge amount of interest in bed, bath and beyond. So clearly that's a company that we couldn't, or we took a decision not to launch an ETF on a leveraged ETF on because we didn't believe that that was going to be a story that was going to be around or a company was going to be around in the next five, 10 years. So for us, it's a lot of money to launch an ETF and then to manage it. So you, you have to, when you, when you like any business, when you're factoring in your break even point or your business case for launching a product, it has to be something that has enduring appeal. It can't just be a flash in the pan. Otherwise it just doesn't work from an ETF perspective. Gotcha. And, and this is kind of a side note. It just got me thinking about, so, you know, you're, you guys are from, from what I'm interpreting is, is you're providing sort of a mathematical way to, you know, express an opinion on a particular stock. And then let's just say NVIDIA, how does that compare to other ETFs? And maybe I have the wrong term and, and uh, you know, the ARC ETFs popped in my mind about how the performance of their ETFs have not been doing well because they were mostly growth stocks and rates hit them. So those ETFs are not doing well, but those seem to have more of a investment thesis. Can, can you speak to maybe the, the difference between an ETF like that, where you're expecting it to go up because the fund manager is choosing what to put in there? Is that, is that correct versus maybe what yeah. you guys are doing? Yeah, so the, the, the difference I'd say, and it goes back to my comment about the ETF being a wrapper or, or a package where you can put, you know, almost anything in it. Right. So there are different types of ETF. A lot of what we provide, leverage single stock, they're really just a trading tool. So think of it as just a tool in the toolkit where what we're trying to give the investor in the case of NVIDIA is 1.5 times leverage on the NVIDIA share price over a given day. So. Put simply, if, if NVIDIA goes up by 10% in a day, our ETF, we would hope, expect to go up by 15% in a day. Okay. So one and a half times. And that is just a trading tool. So it's just for the person that says, I know, I know NVIDIA, I like NVIDIA, earnings are coming out or I'm bullish on the stock or whatever the reason might be. And I want to get exposure and I want to magnify my return 
versus just buying the stock. So that, that is a case where the investor knows about the stock, is informed about the stock, and is just simply using our ETF to express their view. And it's not a leveraged one, but it's just like gold. We have a physical gold ETF. Um, there's no leverage in it. But again, everybody knows what gold is. That is just going to track the price of gold up, and it's going to track the price down. And so that's just for somebody who, who says, hey, I, I know what gold is, clearly. I think the price of the gold is going up. I just want to implement my view. What, what something like ARC is, that's a strategy. It's not a tool in the toolkit. That's a strategy whereby it's actively managed. So you're taking one person's view, i.e. the fund manager, you're relying on their strategy, their expertise, their vision to make you money. And that's just a, it's a success or failure. It's, it's binary kind of at that point because your ability to make money is purely determined by their ability to pick the right companies or hold the right companies at the right time. And so it's just a very different type of investment. So you, you, you have to then believe in the thesis and then not only believe in the thesis, but the thesis itself has to be right for you to make money. Whereas for us, it, it's binary. It's just, it's the price of NVIDIA going up or down. If it's going up and you're leveraged via the ETF, you make money over that particular day or price of gold, whatever it may be. And if it falls, then you lose money. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking for the listeners. You know, we have a lot of options traders here. And one of the things that sort of the lure of options trading is that you can start with a little bit of money and you can apply leverage. And obviously that goes both ways. And I know just from my experience with leveraged ETFs, it, it might be a good place for someone to start. Like if you want to trade in, and we'll just stay NVIDIA, Tesla, and you want a little bit of leverage for trading, but you maybe don't want to have to choose options. Maybe that's too levered because the op options can be very levered depending on your account size and all that. So this may be a good option for people to you know, get a little bit of extra exposure with a small amount of money. But I'm going to go back say, to Eric, the, yeah, and the, and the, with the, the options is a great example as well, because like the traditional form of leverage, there's no expiring, you know, right. so another thing, another thing that's interesting, especially with people who are, who are thinking about, you know, the differences that you don't have to worry about timing per se in the same way that you would with an options contract or any position, traditional leverage position that has margin on it, which is nice, a nice feature you know, for those that, you know, can actively manage or monitor the portfolio. And so taking that, that sort of binary, you know, timing decision out of the portfolio or out of your, your thinking can be useful as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's no time decay either. You know, the, yeah, that's a good point. Well, Will, I really appreciate you coming on. I learned a lot. I'm going to, I don't always go back and listen to all of my episodes, but I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this one. To really understand. And I definitely recommend all my listeners go over to granitshares.com. I'm going to put the links in the description uh, to make it easy for everyone. But man, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. Appreciate much it. appreciated. Yeah. All the best.